Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 22? The, I'm still on the, the subject, the comfort of sovereignty in the midst of tragedy. God is in control. We started this thing with Isaiah 53. The Father is laying the chastisement and his wrath on his son to the ratification of a covenant that was made in a realm that we cannot understand that does not belong to time and space, but it belongs to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And this thing's going to be worked out even though sinners are sinning, traitors are betraying, world kingdoms are conspiring, false religion is lying, and servants are weak. It's still going to work out because God said that it would and covenanted it to be so with the Son from before the foundation of the world. I'm, I'm in this thing. You are if you're a born-again believer. You are as part of the covenant that God has made for us, the Father with the Son, in the heart and on the mind of the only Savior we could ever have, God the Son. So Rome is doing its thing and Judaism is doing its thing. Judas does his thing. The high priest does his thing. And even the apostles will collapse and do their thing. But in spite of all of that, Christ will do his thing. And secure for me what was guaranteed to me before the world ever was. Now we are in the upper, it's Thursday night. Christ is going to be arrested later in this evening. And then he's going to be terribly mistreated. Cruelty, horrible torture, until finally crucifixion and death and all that happens. But this story just continues and we have to keep linking each thing to the last thing that we studied here so that the, the full import of the whole thing comes into our hearts and releases a worship from us given to us by the Father that is just indescribable because of what His Son is doing, will do, has done, continues to do. For us. So this is part three. The comfort of sovereignty in the midst of tragedy. And I call this part of the message and 
he said to them. So let's look at beginning in verse 24. You shall not be thus. They're all hyped up on kingdom talk. The king, the power of the king. They're beginning to understand that something doesn't seem right because everything now is, is in secret. Christ is avoiding and Christ is not avoiding, but, but Christ is moving past those who would otherwise conspire because he will be given as the Lamb of God at the appropriate time with regard to Passover. So it's stealthy. We're going to go to an upper room. We're going to go. You go find this guy. You tell him this and he'll say, okay. And you'll be reminded there's an upper room that's furnished and there we're going to meet. And I've longed to have this Passover with you before I suffer. So this is, this is where we are. They're in the, they're in the upper room. Now, all of this secrecy, this clandestine stuff and, and the obvious conspiracies of the powers that be and the threats that are being made against Christ, the things that Jesus himself has told his disciples about death and crucifixion and all that they have seen and experienced and still Still their doctrine is fixed on the second coming and they still are avoiding the reality of what the Bible teaches us regarding the suffering Christ who must die for his own before he brings his own into the kingdom physically in his second coming. So I go back and I, I call it and he said to them, you find this or, or something like that phrase repeated through this long passage that goes beyond verse 38 because this is, a, this is a teaching time for Christ. They're not going to be able to contain all of it because they have their own biases. They're going to have to experience the cruelties and the realities of the mistreatment and crucifixion of Jesus. Then things will begin to come back around. Christ knows this. And we can see ourselves, we can even see the, the church in general in some ways in what we are about to study in this passage of Scripture. Christ is talking about suffering. I will not eat this Passover again. I won't do this until we're in the kingdom. I'm about to die. Somebody's going to betray me here. And so we come into the part where they say, is it me? Is it I? Is it who? Is it me? So now they're focused on themselves. Christ is edging into the passionate suffering that only he can bear. But once again, 
And I'm telling you, all of us in our weakness, at some point, all of us want to be focused on ourselves more than we are the work of Christ. Instead of thinking of what Christ right now in heaven is doing for us, we think more of ourselves and our plight in life or whatever. This is how they are. It's introduced here to us. You shall not be thus. Well, let's see what that means. There was a great dispute among them. To which of them is thought to be the greatest? I can speak from more than 40 years experience as a, as a pastor of five different churches that, that ranged anywhere from a couple of hundred members to more than 2,000 members. And there are always those who think they're the greatest. They think they can float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, I guess. Better than the other guy. More in charge than the other guy. More important than the other guy. Well, here they are. They're fussing at it. Each of them thinks he's the greatest. Jesus said to them, kings of the nations, the Gentiles, rule over them. They exercise authority over them and they call themselves benefactors. All right. That's an interesting word, benefactor. They are the provider, the energizing provider. So it's been this way in the era of the Gentiles, in the times of the, of the nations, generally. Thank God, in my lifetime at least, up until recent days, God blessed me for whatever reason to let me grow up in America where at least until this point, I didn't have people in authority telling me what they were going to do for me. You're going to do this and you're going to do that and, and I'm just being a benefactor to you. I'm going to let you live here. I'm going to let you do that. You know, that's how it's been in the times of the Gentiles. It's, it's been auto, autocratic, it's been authoritative. Jesus is saying to his disciples, okay, kings of the nations in this world rule over them. They call themselves benefactors. Oh, they think, they think they're doing everybody a favor, you know. Instead of letting a man just develop on his own and exercise his own abilities and be a free man, his property belongs to the king. His time belongs to the king. His money belongs to the king. His crops, his flocks, they all belong to the king. And if the king wants his family as indentured servants, his family belongs to the king. And the king says, I'm doing you a favor, taking care of you. This is how Christ says to his disciples, listen, you're using language like the world. I'm important. 
I have authority. I'm the greatest. <coughs> You're sounding like the kings of the nations. Now to me, that's a pretty good preacher. Who was that? <laughs> Hallelujah. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus is saying, guys, three years and you're sounding like the world. They call themselves benefactors. They force the issue. Now Christ is going to leave the gospel. His gospel. Into the lives he's going to invest it into the lives of these guys initially. Eleven of them at this point. Judas, of course, betrays Christ. Is it me? They haven't, even, they haven't even noticed that there's one guy that's kind of an outlier. They're just so focused on themselves. They can't say, oh, am I the one? Me? Is it me? Well, no, and it couldn't be me. I'm, I'm the greatest guy sitting at this table outside of Jesus. So you think, so you think you're doing the world a favor by just being here. That's what Jesus is saying, really. You guys are sounding like the world. However, you shall not be thus. There is a particular religion running rampant in the world today. Flying around unchecked, I don't understand why. But you will, you will submit to their religion or they'll lop your head off. They'll kill you, they'll kill your family. That's the way of the world. That's a religion of the way of the world, authoritative, greater than everybody else, and I will impose by force of arms this religion. You know what Jesus, Jesus says, not us, you shall not be thus. Instead, let the greatest among you be as the younger. Now in that culture, the younger always was subservient. The elders were the leaders. And the one leading as the one serving. For who is greater? The one reclining or the one serving? Is not the one reclining? However, I am in your midst as the one serving. Now you have to go back to John 13 to understand what is happening right here. While they're arguing over who is the greatest, something that people needed has been totally overlooked. They've come into an upper room and there were supplies there for this to be done, but everybody thinking he's the greatest refused to subject himself to this job 
of making sure that everybody's feet were clean. They're arguing, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Christ quietly begins to slip off the upper part of his robe and he wraps a towel around his waist and he gets down on his knees goes to the first of the disciples and takes his sandals off begins to wash his feet and all this talk about I'm the greatest begins to silence the king of the universe God in the flesh having demonstrated unimaginable power is on his knees washing the feet of his disciples. He comes to Peter. Peter says, Lord, I'm not letting you do this. He said, okay, fine. If you don't let me do this, you have no part with me. Well, in that case, start with my head and go all the way down to my feet. Let me have it all. Christ is making them understand that he is about to serve his people. He is about to be the suffering servant, the Messiah who suffers and serves his people. He's making them understand by this tremendous act of washing their feet. Something was needed and not a one of you did it. I'll do it. We can't save ourselves. None of the others could go to that cross. Only Christ could be the servant. And now, post-ascension era of the church, we do not bring authoritarianism into the church. The largest so-called church in the world is built on a hierarchy. And may I say to you, the guy that's in charge of that group is a nut. He'll get his own. The real church wins the world by being servants, not authorities. Not by being greater than everybody else, but by being meeker than everybody else. Humility. How could we ever claim to be saved if we arrogate ourselves to a place of greatness? We had to become less than nothing to confess sin. To proclaim a need for salvation that we cannot save ourselves Totally, absolutely, utterly helpless, poor in spirit, abject poverty, cannot do a thing for ourselves. And if that's how we come to know Christ, that's how others have to come to know Christ. And they cannot see that in arrogant folks who claim to be Christians. We're told more than once. Take the last place. Don't take the first place. 
And I see it all the time. Somebody wants the first place. I've seen it for years, before I was a preacher. Christ said, you shall not be thus. You will be a humble servant to the world. Bringing the world to an understanding of the absolute sovereignty of God. Who is above all things. I, Son of God, Christ of God, creator of everything, the one who will judge us all. He says in that little group of people, I'm in your midst. and I'm serving you. If I stood up and got on a white horse and rode out here and called down legions from heaven and I bypassed the cross, you would never be saved. Because the covenant would not have been cut. The sacrifice, the Passover lamb of the father would have never been sacrificed and offered and you would have nothing. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Okay, you're the greatest in the world, but you lost your soul in the process. Well, there's nothing to that at all, but loss. However, I'm in your midst as the one serving. You, you are now, you now are those who have remained with me in my trials. It's been a tough, it's been a tough week since Palm Sunday. Now look at this. And I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted to me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and may sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That Greek word up there is a word, it's a covenant word. It is there in its verb form. So literally he says, this is my covenant with the Father. There will be a kingdom and you're going to be in it. Now here's, here's what I love about this. Well, I don't, I don't, well, I love it. Let me think, what's a better way? I can identify with it. These guys are about to fail. Peter is about to deny the Lord cursing and swearing. But before all that happens, Christ says, I have covenanted you a kingdom. I've learned something about being a Christian. If your faith is real and genuine, It doesn't exempt you from failure, but it guarantees you the victory. I've failed many times in my Christian life. You have failed many times. Nobody has gone through his Christian life without failure. You'll get set up by the devil and you don't realize you're getting set up and he'll find a weak spot and you'll fall into a trap. 
But the covenant has been made. In spite of our failures, there is a kingdom. For what purpose? That you may eat and drink at my table. Now they're going to be, these guys are going to be the most honored guests. Noblemen. Can you project your mind forward to the time just past the rapture and judgment seat? World is falling into tribulation and awful, horrific times. And the bride of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus is translated. We're robed and and we're harped, crowned. And there's this banquet hall that is beyond anything you could imagine where we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb and the bridegroom is the great honored host who comes into the head table and those who immediately follow him are these guys. Right after the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, the greatest nation in the world at that time, Israel. Finally enjoying the boundaries that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The son of David, the Lord Christ, sits on the throne as the king of Israel. All the other kings serve him in that millennial kingdom. That great nation in the millennial kingdom, the greatest nation that will have ever existed in the history of creation itself will be Israel. It will be divided into 12 tribes and the 12 guys who will be the boss, the governor, the prince, whatever, over those tribes of these guys. There's suffering, there's failure, there's misunderstanding, there's a long Row to hoe. There are things that you cannot see, but I've already seen it. There are things that are going to happen to you because you need them to happen to you so that you can be strengthened. So that others can see how it works out in your life. And they can understand the sovereignty of God in all things, even when things seem bad. And Christ is saying to them, even before they fail, and they're going to fail, they're going to run, they're going to hide. One of them is going to curse and swear. But even past that, Christ says, I've covenanted a kingdom. You're in it. But not only that, you're at the head table with me. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These guys mostly are going to die as martyrs. They're going to die awful deaths, except maybe for John, who died on the Isle of Patmos, or who, who died later after that maybe in Ephesus, but as an old, old man, except maybe for him, but he suffered on the island of Patmos. They were mistreated. What do you think, man? They had nothing, but they were faithful. The Bible starts out that, that John 13 like this. John, it's this, it's this account, but it's probably the, the most expansive account is in John 13. It says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Ice, telos. 
He loved them to the utmost. God loved them as far, as hard to imagine, as far as God could love them. You in the kingdom, you are loved beyond what you could imagine. If your faith is genuine and real and there are times when it's tested, there are times. That's how the world knows. That's how you know that it's for real. You cannot understand the times I struggle in prayer and I think of people. You never hear of them in Christian circles. You never, you never hear of any Christian I don't know everybody and I can't be their judge. But there's simply nothing there that demonstrates their faith. I don't know. I just don't know. For those who are for real and genuine, they're tested. And doesn't matter what come, they're in the kingdom to be seated at a great banquet table in an infinitely glorious way that is yet to come. So, we trust God and his sovereignty and we are servants and we're not the bosses of the world. We carry this great treasure in clay vessels. The treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we say to those who would listen, I say to you humbly, I came to Christ as a helpless, no good sinner. And there was nothing in me worth eternity. But by the grace of God, I was made to realize how worthless I am and how great God is in Christ. And I humbled myself at the foot of his cross and God made me to realize that when he died on the cross, he died for me. I can't make you believe that. I can't convict your heart. But I can be a witness to Christ and to the reality of the salvation that is mine. There is a kingdom. It is as real to me as the ground on which I stand. And someday... I will be in his presence. And I have tried my best to walk humbly with the Lord. If you would come to Christ, you must humbly submit yourself to the Savior. The church has no authority to impose on you salvation or to take it away. But I can tell you of a Savior. I can testify to the Christ of God who already has established a kingdom that is real. There's another guy there. Nobody could see him but the Lord Jesus, I suppose. Satan was there. And man, I can see this even in my life. Simon, Simon. 
Behold, Satan has demanded to have all of you to sift like wheat. Now, this is interesting. You don't hear this much, but it's the way the Greek is. Up here, if you look at that word, humas, that's all of you. That's in the plural, second person. He's talking about all those guys, not just Peter. Because he's trying to keep the testimony of the cross. He's trying to stop this thing. And the first line of witnesses will be these 11 guys. And so Satan, that's an interesting word to demand it. It's really kind of hard. You know, you don't, you don't stand to get sassy with God without having your molecules disassembled. But that's a exitesato, exitesato. So tell, ex, to ask out. In other words, he's, he's earning, he, it's like he's dogging the heels of God. You gotta let me have a shot at this guy. You gotta let me in on this. You gotta let me go in where those guys are and let me have Adam. He did that with Job. Let me tell you this, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. He belongs to God. He's the accuser of the brethren, the revelation says. He's, I think, petitioned for me quite a few times. Look at this. Now the you here, you become singular. Christ focuses his attention on Peter. Why? We're going to see right here. However, I petitioned for you. This is my high priest. Let me tell you something. Satan, I, I don't mind telling you, he has all kinds of things he can charge me with. Bring them right up there to the father. That guy, that silly guy down there. Let me tell you, he did this, he did this. He does this all the time. He did this. But my lawyer stands up, my mediator. He intercedes for me. He stands between me and all of my failures. Satan demanded to have all of you to be sifted like wheat, but I have petitioned for you. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And, and I've got arrows here because this is why he focuses on Peter. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter's going to do worse than any of them. He's going to try to act like he's not who he is and change his dialect and he's going to curse and swear and deny three times. The other guys, they just ran and hid, you know. But Peter is vehemently, audibly, with cursing and swearing, denying Christ. So that the other of the ten could look at Peter and say, well, I wasn't that bad. Man, I was scared and I hid in a corner. But when I got caught up with it, I didn't cuss and swear and deny Jesus with cuss words. 
when you have turned, not if you. You see, God is in charge. Not if you turn, when you turn. This whole thing is in the charge of God. Strengthen your brothers. Here's why it goes from plural to singular. There is one guy who is the supreme sinner in the rejection of Christ, and that's Peter. There's one guy who will turn like this, and they'll see it. And they'll say, you know, if this happened for Peter, if he did that for Peter, he'll do it for me. Then strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I'm ready both to go to prison and to death with you. And he said, I tell you, Peter, today the rooster will not crow until you will deny knowing me three times. Three times. Let me bring this to an end. Whatever you have, it's enough. So let's look at it. He said to them, when I sent you without purse and bag and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. You have to go back, way back, several chapters. You know, they go out two by two. The Lord said, don't take anything with you. Don't take any money. Don't, don't, don't take change clothes. You're going to go, and there are going to be homes opened up to you, and people are going to take care of you. If you come to a house and they won't, they won't accept you, just shake the dust off and go to the next one. You'll find one. They'll take care of you. You don't have to carry a thing. That was in a day... When hundreds of thousands of people were flocking to hear Jesus and he was healing them on a daily basis on a massive scale. No funeral would pass Christ carrying a corpse past him. No sickness, no illness, no evil spirit was beyond his touch. And Luke says earlier, he said and he healed them all. In a better day, Jesus said, you remember in those days, I told you not to worry about it. And you admit that you didn't lack a thing when you went out. But then he said to him, but now the one having a purse, take it. Likewise a bag. And the one having not, let him sell his cloak and buy a sword. I like that. Jesus in the second amendment, man, I tell you. Let him sell his cloak and buy a sword. <laughs> you, won't, you won't freeze to death as quickly as you'd get stuck to death. Jesus is saying they're against me. Well, let's just look. He's, he's going to point out that it's, it's told in the Bible they'll turn on him. For I say to you that it should be this. This which has been written for I say to you, Tuto, this which has been written must be accomplished in me. He quotes a piece of Isaiah 53. And he was counted with the lawless. Maybe it says numbered with the transgressors or something. It's not that he, ha he hung between two thieves. It is that God 
God accounted him as a transgressor, as lawless, so that the wrath of God would fall on him and God would be pleased by the travail of his soul. So Jesus says, this has been written, it has to be accomplished in me. They're going to turn on me. I'm going to have to be made a criminal. I'm going to have to be made worthless. They're going to they're gonna rip my flesh off of me, rip my clothes off of me, humiliate me, and do the worst things imaginable to me. Because the Bible says I have to be numbered with the lawless. For the things concerning me have an end. Namely, the prophecies of the first coming of the suffering Christ. We have to move through those things that the Old Testament says about my first coming. And when they all turn on me, you're on your own. And whatever you have will have to be enough. That's something, isn't it? So here he goes. And they said, behold, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, it's enough. Pretty sure one of them belonged to Simon the Zealot, maybe the other one to Matthew the tax collector. Peter carried one of them. We're going to see that later, God willing. He carried one of the swords. Whacked the guy's ear off. You see, now, this goes on in through the book of Acts. It goes on in the life of Paul, ministry of Paul, beyond the book of Acts, beyond the book of the Revelation, past the seven churches into the era where we are now. The church will suffer because the world hates Jesus. The pride of the world cannot accept the position of a helpless sinner. Oh, I'm not bad, I'm good. I'm not weak, I'm strong. I'm independent. I can do things my way. I don't need the word of God. I don't need the cross. I don't need the Christ. That's the world. I can dominate. I can make people do what they need to do and they'll be glad because I'm good to them. That's the benefactor. The world doesn't operate the way the church does and the church doesn't operate the way the world does. Christ said what he's saying is understand you're going to have to take care of your needs and then he's going to say in the ascension but I'm with you. What else do you need? I'm with you. The great power of Christ the spirit of God who has carried the work of Jesus for centuries, centuries. It's enough. You carry what you can. I'll be there with you. This is how the church is started. Our failures, our flaws, our defects are all factored in. But the sovereign power of God keeps it all in check. There is a, I call it spiritual jujitsu. 
Jiu-jitsu is a beautiful thing. Yusul, jiu-jitsu. Means yielding technique. Let the big, strong, bad guy throw something at you, but if you're trained, you can take what's coming and just sort of turn and then flip it back the other way, and down he goes. That's how it works in the lives of Christians. We yield and God applies the power to his glory. And the church moves on until the kingdom is complete. Until the last one is saved according to the covenant that the father made with the son. And sin gets as bad as it can get in the universe. And then it's all put down. And then it's destroyed. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth and an eternal kingdom of which I'm a part. Because God placed me in that book. Psalm 139. He wrote every day of my life in a book. Before the days ever came. Great sovereign God. Who saves me. And who keeps me saved. The accusations come by the devil. The intercession comes from Christ. I have prayed for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into the world to save sinners. Come to Christ. The Bible says, admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Confessing your sin, call on him to save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There are no maybe so's with God. Is God calling you to Christ? Come and share that with me today, would you, in a time of invitation? Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian. God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. You come. We'll take care of all the details of church membership. If that's what God wants in leading your life into this church. Father God in heaven, bless us as you know how. Glorify yourself in whatever happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?